0: Welcome back to Camden Cast, your Baltimore Orioles podcast from CamdenChat.com. Joining you once again, I am your host, Mark Brown, Eat More SK on Camden Chat, along with me for the ride, as always, Andrew Gibson. How is it going, Andrew?
1: Well, it is about the hurricane and a little
0: somber day in Birdland. But other than that, surviving. Yeah, we got to batten down the hatches here in the... uh, the Birdland home territory as well, so hopefully it's not as bad as it could be. But to any of our Eastern Shore listeners, if we actually have Eastern Shore listeners, stay safe for sure. And like you said, it is definitely a, a kind of a somber couple of days in Birdland with the news of Mike Flanagan. Uh, and reports today came out that he it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which really just makes the sad story a lot sadder. Than it was already. And uh, as a broadcaster, as a general manager, as a player, as a pitching coach, he had a lot of a lot of influence on Orioles fans. And I personally got to meet him actually a couple months ago as part of the uh, the Mass and Blogger Night experience. And we were running late, and so it was kind of dinner time for him and Gary Thorne, But he came out and cut his dinner short, and he was talking to us while he was like occasionally drinking out of a cup of soup. And he just had so many just funny stories and insightful stories about some of his time as a broadcaster. And there was this one that he told us that was my favorite, and I haven't seen it mentioned in any of the uh, the stories about him. So I'm going to tell it from my Mike Flanagan story here. He was telling us about this time in the mid-90s. It was right around when the O.J. Simpson trial was uh, was in the news. And the Orioles were playing in Cleveland, and he was telling us about how in Cleveland they had this old bullpen fence that was like a chain-link fence kind of thing. And Cleveland at that time had a pitcher whose name was Chad OJ. And Flanagan saw Chad OJ just kind of standing up against the fence. And he said, well, it looks like they finally got OJ in the pen. And he was telling us how he heard himself say that. And he was like, oh, God, I hope I don't get fired. But then him and his partner then, I forget who that was, that year, but they just couldn't stop making all these O.J. jokes, and he was going on and saying stuff like, "Well, I wonder if the glove fits," and all this other stuff. And uh, we're just sitting there cracking up because, you know, I mean, none of us were probably sitting there watching that game in 1995, and uh, it was just a really funny story. But obviously, he didn't end up getting fired, and uh, despite what he was afraid of, he was telling us they were they were hoping the inning would just end so they could stop and not dig the dig the hole any deeper. And uh, just, just uh, I can just imagine from listening to some of the Gary Thorne-Mike Flanagan combinations from this year, uh, they probably had their share of innings like that during the course of this season.
1: It's, uh, it was a great shock to me when I heard that news. And I don't know, he, he just seems like whatever he was dealing with in his personal life was so far removed from person that we saw and uh, it, it's it really is a tragedy and um you know it, it puts a lot of things into perspective uh, especially you know we can complain about the horrible baseball season but that's not right, no matter how much it might seem like it so, i don't remember flanagan as a player at all i'm too young unfortunately
0: yeah, his best days as a player were before either you or I were even born, because he won the Cy Young in 1979, and, yeah, that was way before my time. And uh, the 83 World Series was a month before I was born, and I think, you, if I remember right, you are yeah. a couple of years younger than me, so, so you know, Flanagan as a player, not, not for us so much. But, uh, Maybe vague memories as a pitching vague, coach?
1: You know, pitching coaches, they, they sort of fade quickly. But yes. When I think of watching the Orioles on TV, it's hard. It's really hard to picture him without Mike Flanagan in the booth. I know that might be strange for a lot of people, but for me, it's it's going to be weird and hard and, and difficult and sad to to not hear his voice doing color commentary anymore. Oh, but, well,
0: at any rate. So Flanagan, as his time as the GM, is one of the things we wanted to touch on here, because some of the stuff that was reported, and I, I mean, I can't say how accurate it was, but certain news stations thought it was, was that uh, you know he was took criticism from his time as the GM just hit him really hard, and it's it was, I mean, it was kind of sad to see that, because if you think about it, the two of the years where Flanagan was the GM, I mean, the world's obviously didn't win the world series or even make the playoffs, but they were among the least terrible years that we've seen in the last 13. Cause like 2005, they were actually in first place in the AL East until June the 23rd and 2004, they actually outscored their opponents, which is the only time that's happened in the whole losing streak of seasons. That is. And, it's just, uh, I don't know, it, uh, it's yeah, weird to think about.
1: I feel like a lot of people want to talk about how good of a pitcher he was and how good of a broadcaster he was and how funny he was and what, what a good person he was. And he was all those things. And it seems like nobody wants to talk about what he did as a front office executive, and that's fair because the team has been a, a punchline. But, yeah, 2004 was the last time the Orioles scored more runs than they allowed. They're not going to do that this year.
0: They, yeah, the, the Orioles' run differential currently is uh, minus 130 right. or something like that. And yeah, minus 130 after today's 6-1 victory. You, you look
1: at the run differential, and that can tell you a, a huge part of the story of how good of a team you've built. Well, there's still a lot of you know static in, in that, but that was the last team that you didn't necessarily have to be ashamed of really uh, that sounds awfully hard on the following teams, but um yeah i I think ashamed seems seems about right They've been really, really bad, and that year they they were still bad, but they weren't really, really bad. And a lot of that had to do with the players, the free the um, the free agent players, the front office brought into that team that year. Talking about Miguel Tejada and Javi Lopez, who both had really good years and um, having the wisdom and luck to, to give Melvin Mora the third base job and let him just go out there and play and he put out his career year in 2004.
0: Yeah, Melvin Mora batted 340 with a 419 on-base percentage, 562 slugging percentage in 2004. That's uh, that's really the best Orioles offensive season we've probably seen since the turn of the century.
1: And you know, that was the last group of players that I really got behind. I mean, I own an Adam Jones t-shirt now, and I've got a bunch of free t-shirts sitting in the drawer, but you know, I got a Melvin Mora t-shirt for Christmas that year because it was really cool to have Melvin Mora on your team. He was awesome. He was one of the best third basemen in, in the league. And it, you know, it didn't work out. The pitching staff was uninterested for all those years.
0: Um, it is it is just so crazy looking at the pitching stats compared to the hitting. Because you see all these guys. I mean, in 2004, we had Javi Lopez, 23 homers. Rafael Palmeiro had 23. Miguel Tejada had 34. Melvin Moore had 27. You got three guys of slugging above 500. And it's like, wow, what, what happened here? And then you look at the rotation that year. Sidney Ponson... Started 33 games, had a 5.3 ERA. Daniel Cabrera started 27 games, had a 5 ERA. Eric Vidard started 26 games, had a 4.59. Then we had Eric Dubose and Matt Riley, each started for 14 and 13 respectively. Dubose had a 6.39 ERA. Riley had 5.63 ERA. It's ridiculous. Oh, and the staff ace that year was Rodrigo Lopez who wasn't even a starter the whole year. But he started 23 games, pitched a total of 170.2 innings, had a 3.59 ERA. It's 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 unbelievable how bad the pitching was that I'm year. It's
1: really a shame because if the pitching had been even league average, that could have been a team that made some noise down the, the stretch a little bit.
0: I think they would have at least, kind of as September rolled along, been sort of in the vague fringes of the conversation and it's
1: not hard to squint and see how that team could have been pretty good and you can't say that about any other team during the stretch you can only say that about that team that mike flanagan built and you know that does not mean he was a great gm it doesn't mean he was a bad gm but you can't say that about any of andy mcphail's teams you can't say that about any of Sid Thrift's teams. You can't say that about Frank Wren's team.
0: So yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I mean, again, because 2004 was like you said, it was the one year where you weren't really embarrassed to be an Orioles fan. And even I mean, 2005 had okay, they won for a few months, but then all this stuff with the Palmero steroids and the whole. Sammy, so was the situation towards the end of that year, and then you were just like, "Oh, let's stick my head in the paper bag here. Come on!"
1: I mean, things, but they, it collapsed. The the offensive support and the 2004 offense alone is a top ten offense in baseball. They were still behind the Yankees and the Red Sox, but it wasn't that big of a gap. They were a really good team. They scored a lot of runs. Um. We, it didn't, it just, didn't last. I think it was built on players who were too old. And then they they supplemented it with... And stop me if this sounds familiar. They supplemented it with uh, superstar names who were not living up to anywhere near the production. Oh, no,
0: yeah. I can't imagine that ever happening.
1: And then, you know, the steroid stuff sort of broke everything for good. But I don't know. I, I don't think it's fair to just avoid talking about our uh, beloved Orioles' time as a front office executive. So.
0: Well, I think we have we have touched on it more than most people yeah. have. So.
1: And um, we're going to miss him. Um, that's the best you can say, I guess.
0: He will be missed. He will be missed by more than just you and I, but we will all miss him. So let's kind of look towards the present a little bit, or the present season anyway. And one of the things that we've bounced around that we wanted to hit on on the next topic is the idea of this team and 100 losses. And question one we want to pose, and we'll answer it for you, but you could think about it too, is does the the concept of having 100 losses matter? And question two that we want to kind of bounce around is, Uh, Was it inevitable that this Orioles team, which Andrew and I both think will probably end up losing 100 games, was it inevitable that the team that was fielded this year be as bad as they are? And uh, so for the number one, does 100 losses matter anyway? I have mentioned on the site several times, the only reason 100 has any significance to human beings is because we have a base 10 counting system because we have 10 fingers and 10 toes. And 100 losses is an irrelevant number because the Orioles are just as bad, just as irrelevant uh, in the playoff race. If they have you know 97 losses versus 100, 93 losses versus 100, these are still signs of a terrible team. And the media by fixating on 100 losses, as it's done towards the end of the season, uh, every season really of the last several, because it was all not about... Not that we're helping. Not that we're helping. Yeah. But, uh, you know, every season for the last several, is all about, oh, well, they got to avoid 100 losses. They've only lost 100 times in 1988. Okay, but it misses the point by taking that moral victory, because the team is still terrible, whether or not they go, you know, 5-1 and one in their last six games just to avoid, just to have 99 losses instead of 100. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. But they keep talking about it. I don't know. You can't stop talking about it just because... It's human nature or something. It's true.
1: I think as soon as you start talking about 100 losses or 81 wins or some other basically arbitrary number of wins or losses, and you say, this is our goal, we don't want to lose 100 games. And I understand that from the player's perspective because I would not want to be Nick Markakis and have to have a hundred lost season hanging over my name forever, and I certainly wouldn't want to be a guy who, you know, is looking at the Orioles and say, "I oh, just lost hundred games." Maybe we can find something else. But all of that stuff aside, I think if you look at the organization and you say it means something, anything, it means anything, that we lost 100 games, I think you're doing it wrong. Because 100 losses doesn't matter. 80 wins doesn't matter. The only number that matters, the only way that you can seriously judge how successful you are in any given year is whether or not you were in contention for a playoff spot. Because that is the only thing that I want. I think it's the the only point of running one of these teams is to try to get into the playoffs. The difference between eighty losses and a hundred losses in terms of how successful your season is, is is null, as as far as I'm concerned. Right.
0: You're still as a team, you're sitting on your butts in October while well, you're getting your golf tee times. Maybe I don't know, but your fans are watching other teams on Fox and TBS and. uh, You know, vaguely, vainly perhaps, trying to just find one vaguely acceptable other team to sort of root for, but not really, just because it's the team they hate the least of the playoff teams.
1: I have mine. Um, But I think if you make yourself, if you set yourself a goal, like avoid 100 losses, then suddenly you start making decisions with that goal in mind instead of, as soon as possible win 90-plus games, you know, to, to get into that conversation.
0: And really, we saw this with the idea that it seemed like this season their goal was, okay, win 81 games. And it's like when you set out to win 81 games, then suddenly you find yourself in July, and then you're trying to avoid losing 100 games.
1: It does seem like this happens every year. Yeah. But, you know, the Orioles they need to focus less on what their loss total is going to be and more on how can we get better for next year. And to their credit, I think they have. I I think, you know, they they cut PA. They've brought up Adams. They brought back Fox, which, you know, You might as well see if he can bring anything to the table.
0: Right. And it's, I mean, Jake Fox, I was kind of a Jake Fox hater just because so many people were freaking out about him being the spring trading home runs leader. But as a bench bat, okay, Jake Fox, fine. Just you don't want Jake Fox to be your backup catcher, which was our problem at the start of the season.
1: Right. They brought in Chris Davis and that didn't work out because he got hurt immediately, which of course he did. Of course he did. Yeah. They brought him with the intention of seeing if he could work out at all, not for this season, but to see if we could stick him in the lineup next season and, and have a useful player.
0: So we don't have to sign another Derek Lee in the offseason, for
1: instance. Right. Uh, they finally move Mark Reynolds to first base, and I assume the thinking is, let's see if he can handle first base, because it is clear that he can't handle third base, so... Try and see what can work, so that we have a plan of what we're going to be doing going into the off season and signing new players, and trying to become better for next year. You know, the Orioles are still going to lose a hundred games this year.
0: But speaking and, of that next off season, so everybody who would know these things, obviously neither you or I are among those people, but. You know, national and local baseball media types all seem to think Andy McPhail won't be returning to his current role. We keep calling him the GM, but he's actually president of baseball operations because there's not a GM. And when is the last time the Orioles had a GM? Entered, you know what? I don't know. It might be all the way back to Pat Gillick or something.
1: That's what I'm thinking. I seem to recall Frank Renn specifically not being a GM. And thinking, that's kind of a weird distinction to make. I don't know. Let's see. Uh, it doesn't matter.
0: Wikipedia doesn't say. We shouldn't count <laughs> Wikipedia as a source anyway.
1: Yeah, look up reasons why Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information on Wikipedia.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so we're, go- we're going to have a new GM analog Going into next season. and It would seem. It would seem. So the question for Andrew and I is, what do we want to see in a new GM? What do we want the new GM to do? Well, what do you want the new GM to be? I think for me, it seems like with the way this season has gone, it's the behind the scenes stuff that is the bigger kind of potential problem and area that can be fixed for the Orioles. Cause like player development is just has seemed like a failure with the way that the young pitching has gone this year and whatever is wrong there, whoever the new person is just needs to come in and make that better. And I mean, I think that will pay off in ways we can't even really quantify entirely
1: there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that we just can't talk about because we have no idea.
0: Yeah, we don't know.
1: You know, we can talk about things like, oh, Andy McPhail should follow all these sabermetric principles or whatever, but we don't know that he doesn't. It would appear based on his actions that he is either a much more traditional conservative uh, thinker in terms of baseball philosophies especially when you look at stuff like uh, the production the Orioles are putting out in terms of like walk rates and uh, just general on-base percentage stuff that that sort of thing but that doesn't necessarily mean that Andy McHale doesn't understand the value of on-base percentage and I think it very unlikely that he doesn't at least have an inkling that Getting on base is better than not getting on base. But he could be handcuffed in any number of ways. And who knows? It's really hard to talk about what we want to see in a new GM when we don't even really know what we have in our current one. We just we make educated guesses, but that's that's the best we can do.
0: It's that worth it's said, worth saying you never really know. I mean, some people are really alarmist about it, but you never really know the full extent of what influence, if any, Peter Angelos has on the whole process.
1: Sure. And not just Peter Angelos, but I mean, how many people do you think work for the Orioles in an executive capability? It's got to be a lot of people.
0: I bet it would be an interesting organizational chart to look at.
1: I mean, we'll never see a chart like that, especially with any sort of... Uh, roles assigned to anybody. But, you know, you can put all the blame and all the credit on the GM, and I I would argue that a big part of the job description is taking the blame and the credit. But there's a lot of people trying to make arguments one way or the other on every single player. And uh, I feel like the sort of thing we need is just... I don't know. It's really hard to say what exactly we need from a, a leader of all of this huge group of, of people working hard to, to build a... a acceptable
0: product. With all that's been going on in Birdland over the last couple of days, we've run a little over on this one as well. This is also a two-part podcast. We've got about another 25 minutes worth of content Andrew and I talk about what went wrong with Andy McPhail's plan. He shares his theory about why Vlad is still bad in cleanup, and we touch a little bit on fan optimism, no matter how irrational. Join us there. Thanks.